0: I received God's mercy. I didn't deserve it. I received it. Do I wish God's justice to others? Or do I wish God's mercy to others? Or further, am I gonna be an instrument of God's mercy to those who are even my enemies?
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's cover-to-cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Uh, today, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast, Lotsi Kadar. Lazi serves as evangelist and Bible teacher of the Word of Life Bible Institute in Hungary. Uh, he's a gifted preacher and teacher and diligent student of God's Word. And because of that, I'm excited that he's accepted my invitation to help us think through the book of Jonah today. Uh, Lotsi, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hello, and thank you for the invitation. And uh, the book of Jonah is certainly a very, very exciting book. Indeed. Let me just share a couple of background information with you. So the book of Jonah is uh basically taking place in a very interesting international setting and we are in the eighth century before christ so eighth century that means years that start with seven because before christ we are counting backwards and in the eighth century there is a mighty empire called assyria which is threatening israel from the north now assyria has a long history of being on the rise in the ninth century It was very much attacking Israel and it was a direct threat, but in the early 8th century, they had some enemies from the north, so they kind of withdrew their forces. And that meant that in the first couple of decades in the 8th century, roughly between 800 and 750, there was great prosperity in Israel. And there was was a growing of wealth and the kings that reigned there, They were able to extend the borders of the nation. They were able to introduce stability. And uh, unfortunately, this period was also characterized by growing social injustice, uh, the rich oppressing the poor and leaving God behind. And so this is the background of our friend Jonah. Now, Jonah lived in a little city little town which is close to where our Lord Jesus grew up, Nazareth, approximately three miles of Nazareth, and that's called Gath Hefer. And this Gath Hefer is on one of the international trade routes or royal routes on which Assyria was moving. And please understand, Assyria was not aiming at those small kingdoms at the Mediterranean. Assyria was aiming at conquering Egypt. So adding this all up. 8th century, Assyria is not yet coming, but it's still there. The threat is there. Jonah is living in a town that is en route of the Assyrians as they are trying to conquer Egypt and take the riches of Egypt. And uh, this friend of ours, Jonah, was a prophet at the time of King Jeroboam. And he was one of the advisors that said, Jeroboam, extend the size of the country. Now, one more thing I'd like to mention, that there are two contemporaries of Jonah, two other prophets, Amos and Hosea. And these two prophets actually speak up against the social injustice and the godlessness. But interestingly, Jonah was not. He was one of the encouragers of the king. So was Jonah a real prophet? Yes, he was. But that's not the end of the story. So these are some introductory tasks.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. That really sets the stage for us to get into the biblical text. And and as you mentioned, there's not a ton that we know about the person of Jonah, aside from the things that you just mentioned. The text doesn't give us a whole lot of details other than his birthplace, his father. And then we have a small section in Kings talking about a prophecy that he's given. But
0: really, we don't know a whole lot about him. Am I right? No, no, actually, we don't. We know that he was probably in the royal court of King Jeroboam II, and uh, we know that his location was right on the path of where the Assyrians were moving back and forth. So he must have had firsthand information of the Assyrians. And, you know, the Assyrians were really the terrorists of the 8th century. I mean, probably that's the best way to tell them. I just collected a couple of images of how they dealt with their enemies. Impalement, putting people on sticks. Or here's another one flaying the victim's skin, and then hanging those skins on city walls, okay? Or here's another one, grinding the bones of ancestors to even erase the memory of the ancestors, okay? So when we talk about Assyrians beheading the enemies and building pyramids of their heads, <laughs> so when I'm, I'm thinking about our friend Jonah, I'm thinking about a guy who had first-hand experiences and reports, of the refugees of the Levant, of the countries north of Israel who were fleeing and who were just giving all these reports that these Assyrians were brutal terrorists. If you think about the Al-Qaeda or ISIS today, that category, brutal terrorists. The contrast is that on the other hand, Assyria was a very highly organized civilization with great culture, great architecture, great administration, but in war, They were merciless. Mm -hmm. They were cruel. So Jonah, probably just as anybody else, wanted God to judge the Assyrians. Mm -hmm. And and if I'm thinking about myself, if I think about all those terrorists, my first natural thought, honestly, is that. For sure. And
1: most of our listeners probably already know this because it's a famous well-known story of the Bible, but we've started talking about Assyria because Jonah the prophet in this book is sent to Nineveh by God, which is the capital, a major city in Assyria. And that's why we started talking about this horrific, as you've mentioned, terrorist-like nation, uh, superpower, because this is a major player in the story of the book that we're
0: about to discuss. Yeah, think about it. I mean, Assyria, they caused so much harm israel and and so as the story goes god says jonah go to assyria and jonah says i'm because i'm gonna judge them and and jonah says something like that well i like the judgment part how about not going and just letting you doing the judgment part okay and and that reiterates all through the story you know it's an there's so many interesting things like jonah fleeing israel because His mindset is this, that Yahweh, our God, is the God of Israel. So if I flee Israel, he's no longer there. Okay? Hey, problem solved. And he can just judge the Assyrians the way he wants to. But then God goes after him. And God controls the elements of nature. God sends a storm. God sends a fish. God is kind of cornering Jonah and making him go. You know, we all know the first chapter even from Sunday school, as he's thrown into the water and a fish comes to get him and the fish spits him out. But if we go to the second chapter of the book, there is a little detail. Many people think this is a true prayer repentance. I don't think so. I really think it's just somebody praying that, hey, there is nothing I can do. So probably I'll do something. I'll be thankful. But if we go to chapter three, Josiah, And let me just read one verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying. This one little verse tells me a lot. Because you ask the question, why did God have to tell him again? Did he forget? And I think the story is something like that. That Jonah was spit out by the fish. He goes back to God Hefer and says, okay, so much about the Assyrians. And God does it again patiently. And then Jonah remembers the, the, the sea and the fish and says, you know, probably Nineveh is a bit better in that. So I'm going to go to Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh, takes that long journey. You're talking about weeks. And he gets to Nineveh. And if we listen carefully to his message, <laughs> this is just the shortest message you can imagine. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I am an evangelist. And so I'm going to go to a church on, on Sunday to talk to young people. And when I'm talking about repentance and people turning to God, my message is never like that. You'll be dead. Okay.
1: So as an evangelist,
0: you do not approve of Jonah's strategy here. Uh, you know, <laughs> Jonah says, you'll be dead meat and you deserve it. Something like that. I think about repenting, hearing a message like that. Yet 40 days and you'll be dead meat. Okay. So that kind of shows me that he did not want the Assyrians to repent. Mm -hmm. He wanted them to get what they deserve. And and as the story goes on, we know that Nineveh indeed did repent for his greatest surprise, which is just amazing. Mm -hmm. And then the true Jonah comes out, you know, in the last chapter. Then we see that he's grumpy, he's angry at God, and then God is teaching him a lesson that Jonah, you are sorry for this little plant, but you are not sorry for hundreds of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. So I wonder whose story is that often. Is it, is it the Ninevite story or is it the Israelite story? Because what Jonah is supposed to do is something that was, was given to the people of God from the beginnings. You know, if you think about the Abrahamic covenant and it's first mentioned in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, The text goes something like that. In you, I will bless all the families, all the peoples of the earth. And I checked it this morning, that phrase that you'll be a blessing. Abraham and and his seed, his descendants, will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That is repeated some five times in Genesis. And if we go to Exodus, before God gives his law to Moses, he tells him that, If you obey me, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, and if you think about an entire nation being priests, I mean, whose priests are they supposed to be? Who are the ones they are supposed to intercede for? Who are the ones they are supposed to bring God to? And who are the ones they are supposed to bring up to God? You know, Israel was designed to be the link between God and all other peoples. Mm -hmm. And and in the book of Jonah, we see that the very thing God is calling them to do, Jonah is just not doing it. And the, the story ends open. We never know if Jonah understood that. This is a fascinating story. It really is. I agree with you.
1: That's a great synopsis of the yeah. story. I'm wondering, could you give us a, a bit of an outline of the
0: book? Like, what are some good ways to understand it briefly as a whole? You know, this is biblical narrative, and it uses all the wonderful tools of Hebrew biblical narratives in the original it has a lot of word plays wonderful truly really wonderful word plays it has irony it has contrast and it just it just really uses a master technique just to make the point and so basically this story can be outlined there is a couple of ways you can do it an easy way is this on the way to the fish and on the way to Nineveh. so chapters one and two this is the fish part and Chapters three and four, that would be the any of the parts. So that would be one way to to look at the structure. I kind of like it. You can also take it like chapter one. This is like, you know, on the way to the fish. Chapter two, this is biblical poetry, Jonah's prayer. Chapter three is the actual message and repentance. And chapter four is the Jonah story. So it has basically, as far as a narrative thing, it has four units, four you can call them scenes or two episodes. Mm -hmm. And that's, those are the units that belong together.
1: Yeah, that's helpful, especially as we try to get our heads around a story. And this isn't the longest story in the biblical text, but there's a lot going on, like you said. There's a lot to
0: digest here and it's fantastic. It's only 48 verses, okay? (laughs) It's only 48 verses. So when I'm teaching it in the Bible school, I usually ask the students not read Jonah. Okay, and then let's talk about it. It's something very much doable. But a lot of lessons.
1: Yes. From what you've already mentioned, there is the big fish. There is the epic storm. There is the plant and the worm. And so this is a pretty fantastical story. Here's a hard hard question for you, maybe. Did it actually happen? Do we have to believe it as historical fact? What's at stake if we don't? I mean, that's a question that a lot of people coming to this book struggle with, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It actually did happen. And uh, the point is not to figure out what kind of fish it was. Many people miss the point and, and they start looking for whales and sharks and crocodiles and who knows what. That's not the point. You know, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God could prepare a special fish with some lodging inside. That's, that's not what I'm asking for. My point is that this story becomes a key argument in the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew... So the climax of the Gospel of Matthew is chapter twelve, when there is the ultimate conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus basically does the ultimate healing: a person who is demon possessed, who is mute, who is blind, probably deaf as well. The text doesn't say, but probably he was deaf. So he had nothing. He heals the person. Okay, this is the ultimate miracle. And the Pharisees say, "Well, you did that with the power of Satan Belzebub." <laughs> And, and, you know, they say, show us a sign. Yeah. And then Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any other sign, but the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was three nights, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. So will I be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, talking about his death and resurrection. So basically, Jesus says this, just like Jonah came back alive from the fish, I will come back alive from the no, from the earth I will rise mm-hmm. and and you know after this Jesus says this you may ask the question did he know what he was talking about mm-hmm. and, and you better say yes he knew what he was talking about because if Jesus didn't right. know what he was talking about then he either was wrong which would bring catastrophic results or he lied which would also bring catastrophic results and the third option is that he said what he said was true. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, there is one more thing. And in Matthew 12, he says this the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So Jesus twice underlines that this is indeed a historical story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because is it unbelievable that a fish caught Jonah and Jonah came back alive? Yes, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Is it unbelievable that the Ninevites repented? It's unbelievable. And Jesus says, they will come back and they will condemn you. You are supposed to be their examples. And look, they repenting, you guys don't. Yeah. So Jesus twice says, this is a true historical story. And so it's not so much about, is it possible? It's rather about, can Jesus lie? And he, of course he doesn't lie, but whatever he says, it's true. He's our Lord.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong. Sometimes you talk to Christians who struggle to believe this. And I almost want to ask them. So you're telling me that you believe that God became man That he lived on earth perfectly, that he died for your sins, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, is coming back to establish a perfect kingdom. And you believe all of that, which is central to the gospel, but the idea that he could not send a great fish and a worm and a plant uh, baffles you? There seems to
0: be an inconsistency there. Yes, you are absolutely right. And uh, I think it has to do with the age-old way of how we look at things, epistemology. Mm -hmm. Is our faith seeking understanding or is our understanding trying to explain our faith? And if we say that the Bible is God's revelation given us by the Holy Spirit, then selected from so much more then whatever ended up in the Bible is is very important and is true. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to go through the grid of our understanding necessarily, you know.
1: Yeah,
0: that's great. Thanks, Lazi. I wonder now, as we
1: go to the the text again, there are, and you've mentioned a number of them, so many interesting details in this narrative from irony and all these little characters from the sailors, honestly, are fascinating as well. But for time's sake, I just want to grab a handful. First, can you comment on the use of, you've already mentioned it, the use of irony in this book? Where does it show up and how does the biblical author use it to punch home his point?
0: This is something I love. Look, (laughs) God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And you know what do you expect from a prophet that I go to Nineveh? <laughs> irony, he goes. He tries trying to go the opposite direction. And see, understand, Nineveh from Nineveh from his birthplace, he had to go up north mm-hmm. to go to the port. He had to go down south. So the irony is that he's doing the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. He's going down. Okay, and then here's the the sailors, and mm-hmm. what do you expect from these sailors? You know, they are Gentiles, that they pray to their own God. But actually, when they learn about Jonah, they start praying to Yahweh. And there is another ironic detail that these sailors were probably Phoenician sailors. And they believed that the God of the sea, his name was Yam, was in control of the sea. But here they learned that actually Yahweh is in control of the sea, okay? just a great irony. And when you say that
1: the irony too is when Jonah is cornered after descending down, down, down into the ship, running from the presence yeah. of the Lord, he stands up and gives the testimony. I serve the Lord God, the God of heaven and earth. And yeah. he's, he's declaring all of this before the, uh, these Phoenician sailors, like you're saying.
0: Yes, you're right. You are, you are serving God. Well, good job, Jonah. And, uh, if we go, if we go in one chapter down, if you look at carefully in his prayer, like verse three, Jonah says to God, For you cast me into the deep. Mm -hmm. Really? Was it God's fault? Wow. I am driven away from your sight. Well, whose fault it was? It looks like Jonah is pointing the finger at God that hey God, what did you do to me? Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Now look at if we go down a little bit more, verse eight in chapter two. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But hey, he just experienced, We just experienced the sailors worshipped Yahweh and obeyed him. The wind obeyed Yahweh. The fish obeyed Yahweh. The Gentile sailors obeyed Yahweh. And if you go through the story, every little element obeys Yahweh, except one element who is the servant of Yahweh, the prophet. I mean, that's, that's the big irony. You know, that's the big irony. And if we go to Nineveh, you know, he preaches a message. No single soul would repent today but the Ninevites <laughs> repent yeah it's amazing <laughs> Yet 40 days and you'll be dead I mean <laughs> what the message is that and and then then when they repent mm-hmm. when they repent Jonah is grieving I mean <laughs> look at that you don't have to be a genius for that if somebody repents you have to rejoice now Jonah is repenting when Nineveh is not repenting he's happy when Nineveh is repenting he's unhappy mm-hmm. you know when the, when when a little plant grows, he's happy. When it he dies, he's unhappy. So he's, this all story is a big irony. He does exactly the opposite of what he was supposed to do in God's ideal world. And, and by this, you know, God is teaching the original readers, look what Jonah did. What you're, what you're supposed to do is exact opposite. What you're calling is the exact opposite. And actually, I think it's a message for me and for us and for this generation as well. Yeah,
1: you mentioned repentance. I want to go back there for another observation from this text, you know, and we come to chapter three, there's this pair of repenters, really, Nineveh repents, they turn to the Lord at this sloppy evangelistic appeal from Jonah, but they repent miraculously and praise the Lord. Uh, But then there's also at the end of chapter three, this word where it says, and the Lord relented or the Lord repented of the calamity he was gonna bring upon Jonah. So first, a couple of questions about these two sets of repenters, the Ninevites, and then God in a way, first, were the Ninevites saved? And second, how do we understand God changing his mind? An omniscient God changing his mind. These are two big questions,
0: but I'll put them to the experts. big questions, expert. but uh, thankfully we have, uh, and I could never figure an answer for that, but thankfully, Scripture answered, scriptures answered the question for us. And so talking about, first of all, Nineveh repenting. The previous verse I read you from Matthew 12, Jesus himself says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So thankfully, Jesus makes it clear for us that they repented. Is it all the people? We don't know. Obviously, of people truly and really repented. Today, we may say they were saved. God said, I'll accept you. Hmm. Now, later history of Assyria shows that once again, they destroyed in 722, they completely destroyed the kingdom. But that was God's discipline. But this time he repented. It's possible even if you have such a lame message. And the second, you know, it's it really is a big question you're asking: God repenting or God relenting, God changing his mind? And you say, "Well, oh, wait a minute. God is perfect. God is not changing. He knows everything. So what's going on with the many passage passages? Not just this one, but the many passages." When God pronounces judgment and the recipient of the pronouncement changes his mind, and then God says, okay, I'm not going to do that. And uh, instead of going into the theological textbook, I think I found a scripture passage that answered these questions for us. It comes from Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. If at any time, says the Lord, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Jeremiah eighteen seven through eight, and you know this is an this is a principle of Old Testament, uh, particularly prophecy interpretation. Whenever God pronounces judgment before it would happen, that pronouncement includes the condition, but if you repent, I will not do that. Mm. Sometimes God says, if you repent, I will not do that. Sometimes he doesn't say that. No matter what, if he pronounces it before it happens, the door is always open for repentance. And so that's how we always have to look at, at, at biblical prophecy.
1: I love how you go to scripture to answer that difficult question, because as I think you would say as well, anytime we wade into the waters of God's sovereignty and and omniscience and try to understand it from our finite perspective, we're always going to run into some trouble understanding those two things, right? Yeah. And so you would say that as we understand that God relented of this calamity, as he said he would for those who repent, that didn't take him by surprise that he would eventually relent but we're again, we're wading into waters that we are incapable of swimming totally.
0: Yeah, it's basically, you know, you guys have children. We have children and and our children are teenagers. So I say something like that. If you don't do your chores, then I'm gonna turn up the router. For smaller children, that doesn't work, but there is other methods, you know, that do work. You know, you may need to camp in your room for hours. I remember that once we told our child that if you don't apologize to your brother or sister, And you have to be in your room. And we knew that he would apologize because it was almost dinner time and he was starting to get hungry. Okay. And lo and behold, (laughs) the child came to apologize. But I always say, if do that, then I will do that. So that's how God pronounces things. But it's hard to hard to imagine God because God is in eternity. He does not progress in time. Mm -hmm. He does not go through time as, as we go through time. He is present. At the same time, in all time, that may give us a sense of eternity of be him being atemporal. Lots of you're
1: starting to hurt my little mind. I'm going to change the subjects here. <laughs> when we come to the end of the book, and you mentioned this as well already, but it is this abrupt ending, sometimes called like a mic drop moment where God gives yeah. Jonah, this disobedient prophet, an object lesson to show the folly of his thinking and the short-sightedness of his yeah. thinking. I'm wondering if this leads us to understand, as well as the irony and everything else in the book, the main point of this narrative, why God preserved this book for us. What is he trying to get across to you and I today?
0: Yeah, I think it was very much intentional that God just left this last sentence open. He says this, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle and Then the story ends. And I think about an ancient Israelite hearing that story. God's asking, should I not have pity? And in the non-existing verse 12, the imaginary listener says, yes, you should have pity. And then in verse 13, which also doesn't exist, he may say, now wait a minute, I should have pity as well. This is a book that that is finished with with an open question. and, And the reader, listener is supposed to answer that question. And once again, I think the best answer for us and and the best application for us comes from the Bible, from Jesus Christ, because we face situations like that. We have enemies. We have people we don't like. We have people that hurt us. You know, if you don't believe me, just look down south of your borders and you see what, what, what a great... Division the is there in the United States of America over policies and politicians, and people, even Christians, think nasty thoughts of other people and wish them bad. And, and let me not even continue because this is not something nice. But our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 32 to 36, gives us advice of how we should deal with such situations. It's in Luke chapter 6, verses 30 to 36. Jesus says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that for you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the most high for he's kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And I think that's the point for us today, you know, that uh, we have people that do back to us, that hurt us, that, that, that go against all we believe in. What is our attitude to those people What is our action to those people? Do we love them? Do we have them? Do we tell them about the merciful God? Or do we tell them that you will be dead like like Jonah did, you know? You'll get God's justice. It's basically a story of justice and mercy. I received God's mercy. I didn't deserve it. I received it do I wish God's justice to others or do I wish God's mercy to others? Or further, am I going to be an instrument of God's mercy to those who are even my enemies? Yeah, That, that, was, that was, I think that was the thing that, that our friend Jonah had to understand. I love how you're
1: connecting knowledge of God with action in the world. I mean, it's very clear. There's glimmers in the book of Jonah where Jonah is very orthodox in his thinking. He knows the God from oh. whom he's running. He knows the God... he's disobeying in fact at the end of the book near the end in in chapter four it eventually comes out why he ran in the first place it's because i know who you are i know you're a gracious and compassionate god slow to anger and abundant in in loving kindness hesed who relents concerning calamity i know all of these things and that's why i ran so for us today those of us who know who god is and know his character it's it's not always enough just to know him we're to act out that and extend that compassion to other people right which is
0: what jonah you're saying failed to do you know, this is, this, is, this is God's covenant name, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And, and this shows us that Brother Jonah did know the Word of God. He did know the Word of God, you know, and the Ninevites had no idea about the Word of God. And so he's a guy who knows the Word of God, and knows the law, knows the Torah, knows who God is. And the only thing he doesn't do is, is actually internalizing that knowledge and acting upon that knowledge. And I wonder if there is Christians today who are full of biblical orthodoxy and, and really just nail it and just have the right kind of theology and Bible knowledge, but miss this, this one point, the very important point, of actually living it up, loving their enemies, you know, loving those who heard them, loving those who proclaim ideas that are just completely against what biblical Christians believe, but loving them and praying for them and talking nicely about them and sharing the gospel with them. Yeah, that, is a, that is a big lesson for me, for sure.
1: For sure. James talks about the word of God being a mirror that we lift up and look at ourselves in it. There aren't many passages of scripture, Latsy, that I think are more mirror-like than the end of Jonah chapter 4, where yeah. it ends like that. And you said that there's those imaginary verses 12 and 13 in chapter 4, where basically the mirror is holding up to you and saying, are you like this or are you not? yeah and uh, it's a very convicting book it's a it's a fun story uh children's church uh, you know it it is it's a fantastical story but at the end it's a very convicting and serious message isn't it
0: for children it's like the fun part you know oh (laughs) the fish let's let's call her some fish let's call a whale, okay (laughs) and that's okay but but there's much more here much more here about about you know even the fineries when when Jonah is, is leaving God, he's always going down, down, down. And the Hebrew is just so picturesque. And, and anything that gets closer to God is arises or goes up. And the same word is being used all over the time. And so seeing the Gentiles, Gentile here is going up, up, up to God, you know, worshiping God, everybody obeying except, except Jonah. Even God's
1: invitation to Jonah to arise. Yeah. Arise to himself and go to Gemini. Just those directional
0: verbs that you're saying. It's beautiful how patient God is with Jonah. Mm-hmm. And and that little nuance in verse one in chapter three, that God speaks to him again. I mean, did he forget? I don't think so. I think he just went back to God's affair and said, okay.
1: Well, I could talk to you about this book for a long time. This is one of my favorite stories in Scripture, and you do such a good job of elucidating it, Latia. Thank you very much. And thanks for the time. I know you're busy over there. I want to let you go, but I appreciate uh, your investment over here.
0: Oh, thank you, Josiah. Thank you. It was nice talking to you.
1: Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible, cover to cover.